Hey Boomers, welcome to another spin-off from Sonic the Comic the Podcast. Because this time, we're not covering a normal issue of Sonic the Comic. No, this is a spin-off. This is Sega's supreme fighting team in their own magazine. It's the Eternal Champions Special. £1.75. £1.75? Yeah. That's crazy money. I know, it's slightly more money than STC. (laughs) It's like 65 whole P more. Yeah, and that was a lot back then. It was. Released, if Megadroid is to be believed, in the control zone of issue number 21 on the 12th of March 1994, in between issues 21 and 22 of Sonic the Comic. After the Eternal Champion strip has been running in Sonic the Comic for 1923 issues already. Yes, don't worry, listeners, you haven't missed out yet. This was when we got it as well. The cover advertises 48 pages of kickin' apostrophe action. That's three sizzlin' apostrophe strips. Every character, every move, and how the game was made. 48 pages, not counting the covers, funnily enough, I Mm. noticed. Yeah. This is Eternal Champions from cover to cover. Now, we should probably stipulate up front, this thing in the real world, yes. in the paper, this is like hand's teeth. There was no finding Could this. not find it. Didn't have it back in the day, so it's not in my box of comics. I did have it back in the day, oh. yeah, but oh. I have nothing from back in the day. So, as with our first couple of episodes, we are working off of the scans that are going around on the internet. And um, as scans go, these are pretty complete ones. Of 52 pages, this scan has 48 of them, so I think we're just operating on the assumption that the missing pages were just adverts. And at least one of them will be an advert for STC, presumably. Uh, possibly, yeah. So no just a page of advert segments on this <laughs> podcast, but we do think we have everything else that we need here. I think so, yeah. Now this magazine, which I hadn't read before, it doesn't really acknowledge very much that it's a spin-off of STC. It really is for fans of Eternal Champions. I mean, it says it's a Sonic the Comic mega production right up there in it the does. left top corner of the cover. And it talks about Sonic the Comic uh, in the contents page as well. That's about it, though. That's right. It gives you, a, and it tells you to go and buy STC, of course. Yeah. But it's not, you know, continued on from that comic. In fact, it most of this is supposed to come before it, isn't it? Yes, you want I wonder if perhaps the intention was to release this Mm, first mm. and the the timeline just didn't sync up. Because as we've talked about before uh, in, uh, I don't remember to what extent we touched upon it. But yeah, this uh, special is the origin story for the Eternal Champions team that takes place before the serialized strip that runs in Sonic the Comic. And a few other strips too. Uh, Yeah, and the cover, so imagine it's a big red cover, it says Eternal Champions in a big logo at the front. You've got uh, Shadow who's the uh, the ninja lady, and she's punching and tearing her way through the comic. You know, one of those, she's coming out, there's big rips everywhere and she's coming out. And then, just to be able to get everybody else on the cover, there's literally just a column of their faces lined up next to each other, a bit like, um, you know, the, the strips of photos you get out of a photo booth, yeah. essentially. A little two-by-four grid. Yeah. It's not a great cover. It's not, is it? It's no. not, it's I a... mean, it's by John Howard. There's nothing wrong with how it's drawn. It's just not especially imaginative. No, it's just not very exciting. Yeah. It's not uh, like the cover of STC-19 was a much better, much more exciting cover to introduce these characters. Yes, much more. And, and I'm really surprised that it wasn't sort of the other way around, if anything, because that one really made the Eternal Champions look like an exciting team of people and this just makes them look like some people yeah, right they just lined up for their mugshots yeah here in 2020 because of course this is we're in 1994 but our listeners live in 2020 and um, they might not know about Eternal Champions so I've and I didn't I've, I basically couldn't remember this at all so I looked into it um, on top of what we already have learned from uh, Sonic the comic so far and I would say that um, it, so it's a fighting game but it's deliberately pitched as being different to Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat which were the big games at the time 
And the way that they've done it is, firstly, or at least this is their spin anyway, it's the only one of its kind that's deliberately made for home mm. use. So it's got a lot of bells and whistles that, that would have no purpose in the arcade, such as, you know, extensive training for the player and so on. Yeah, it's not an arcade conversion. Obviously, no. like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat had been ported for console by this point, but Eternal Champions was from the ground up made at Sega to be like their personal fighting game franchise. And obviously it didn't work out that way because you've never heard of it. <laughs> well, yeah. But then I do have a bad memory. But it's uh, it's made by Sega of America. And I would say that if Golden Axe is, we've talked of it before, as Japan's best impression of like American-centric sword and sorcery genres, Eternal Champions is America making a Street Fighter through their own lens. Yeah. So it looks just like X-Men. It has a really violent and elaborate backstory and lore to it for like each individual character. And a lot of the artwork, I looked into this, it's, it's a little bit difficult to figure out who the designer behind this is because um, the online wiki that I found said that it's all designed and mostly drawn by a chap called Ernie Chan, who's a, a veteran artist at Marvel and DC. So that's why it's got that look to it. But then the actual interview in this magazine doesn't mention him at all and does mention other lead artists. So I don't know. I don't know who did it, but... Yeah, I mean, I read that interview and I was like, hmm. <laughs> yes, I had a few hums about that interview as well. We'll get there. So, uh, shall we crack in? Let's crack right in. So the first thing that really jumped out at me when I opened this up and opened this file up yes. and looked at the contents page was how in comparison to some of the other specials that would be produced mm. it looks like sonic the comic the designer uh, claire gilmore i believe is the same uh -huh. let's zoom in on this extremely difficult to read tiny font just to make sure oh and look look at the fun they've had richard xavier burton yeah deborah shadow <laughs> tate Yes, it's Claire Blade Gilmore doing the design. Because the designer for this one is the same. It's Claire Gilmore who normally designs Sonic the Comic um, and who wouldn't do like a lot of like, the summer specials and things. Mm. So it immediately feels of a piece where some of the other spin-offs wouldn't. Which is funny because it's the one that perhaps least needed to feel like that. Yes, it, it really does stand alone as a product. Yeah. Speaking of Gilmore, it's, it's all the same uh, team. It's Richard Burton's doing the editing. Uh -huh. Deborah Tate is the, the sub-editor she's credited as as this one. I seem to remember she would be for a while. That's uh, I, I learned the term sub-editor when Deborah Tate was one. I thought she was co-editor. Yeah, never mind. she has been. She has been. Yeah. No Megadroid, though. It's the eternal editor. Oh. <laughs> but he just does the little sidebar here that introduces things the inside front cover this time where normally we in stc we have you know the control zone and so on what we have here is a, a straight up contents page um and down the side there's this little uh, box that says timelines welcome to a new era in action and adventure welcome to the eternal champion special journey with me now into the events that created the hottest new fighting team in history and it's divided into past present and future uh, past. Yeah, but they don't have milk it to make it fill the whole. I know exactly. Like, pa past is there was a game. Yep. Right now yep. there's a strip in 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 Sonic the comic, and there's this special, and there might be some more stuff. What other things? And yet they managed to yeah. they managed to pull that out into one of the like six or seven paragraphs. Hey, listen, well done to them. It's a it's a job. They got to fill all these pages with something. You ever tried to do it? I've tried to make comments that had a, a welcome screen and control zone and stuff, and, I, and I've quickly noped out of all of them because it's like, damn, what do I put here? 
I am familiar with trying to write enough words to fill a certain amount of page space, though. <laughs> While we're here, I just wanted to mention in the future part where it says that a second series is already being in- made. It's in production. A new series oh, for yeah, STC yeah, already in production, that. which that gives us a little uh, clue about how far in advance STC stuff was made, doesn't it? However long from now it takes for that to show up. If we put a pin in that and we'll know roughly how far in advance they made stuff. And then the contents literally just tell us what's coming. Unlike a regular issue of Sonic the Comic, because there's no news or anything, it's just uh, it's just what's coming up, and we'll uh, we'll not rattle through them now because it's just yeah, it's just what we're about to we're going to describe them to you when we get to them. We've got three strips, profiles on each of the nine champions, <laughs> and a feature in the middle about how the game was made with project leader Michael Latham. And the character profiles are here called Champ Stats, and when I initially opened it, I thought it said Champ Stamps, which is the, uh, <laughs> that's the tattoo that Eternal Champions get on their most champion-y body part. <laughs> I mean, that seems like a missed opportunity for tie-in uh, merchandise, doesn't it? <laughs> Get your champ stamps. Yeah. Get your champ stamps now from the Royal Mint. <laughs> Specially minted by... Do you mint a stamp? Um, Probably not, no, but never mind. <laughs> no. Specially produced in coordination with Sega to commemorate the release of guaranteed gold star fighting game franchise Eternal Champions. Oh, wow, you got your hype man head on today. <laughs> well, it's all retroactive. It's never going to work now. No, well, it might do. Hey, maybe this, maybe on the back of this podcast, they'll make Eternal Champions 3 finally. Mm. <laughs> Shall we dive into the first strip? Yes, please. Death Isn't Forever, written by Michael Cook, art by John Howard, letters by Tom Frame. From across space and time, nine warriors are plucked out of history at the moment of their deaths and brought to the far future by the mystical Eternal Champion. He intends to pit the nine warriors against one another in a tournament, the winner of which will become his champion and destroy the evil machine intelligence who rules his time, the Overlord. The first round of combat winnows the group down to ninja assassin Shadow Yamato, 1920s Private Eye Larson Tyler, vampire scientist Midnight, and Atlantean Manfish Trident, with the losers being sent back to the time stream to meet their fates. Believing that a team stands a better chance of defeating the Overlord than a single fighter, Shadow, Larson, and Midnight form an alliance, refusing to fight each other. Unfortunately, when Shadow defeats Trident in the second round, the sight of his blood awakens Midnight's vampire hunger, and he turns on Larson, defeating him. Midnight and Shadow battle, and after a long fight, Midnight emerges triumphant. The Eternal Champion demands that he kill Shadow, but he refuses, which turns out to be the champion's final test. The tournament was not intended to find a single champion, but to prove that the warriors would fight for good against any odds. The champion summons the other warriors back from across history, and together they all form a team to fight for good in an evil world. The, the Eternal, Eternal Champions! champions. So yeah, if you thought that was a kind of a long synopsis, that's because this strip is 14 pages long. Twice as long as the longest strip in Sonic the Comic. But it didn't feel like 14 pages to me. It didn't feel like a slog to read. No, this is essentially the Eternal Champions game. Just the whole thing just adapted down. Mm. Because it's a fighting game. So the only story is in the backstories of the characters and what happens to them afterwards. And the, the bit in the middle, the fighting, is just... 
it's just it, they do it in the, the Eternal Champion's house. So, <laughs> so this is just that. Like, like the summary only mentions the four characters who actually matter to the plot, but because the other ones are all knocked out in a series of four fights that literally are one panel each on a single page. Yeah, the fighty bit is not interesting. They don't they don't bother with that part of the story. I mean, I do. It's funny, right? In the early bit of the story, when the champions are training before the fight starts, yeah. Trident won't work with the others to because he is a proud gladiator who thinks the rest of them are all crazy and the, the glory of battle is what he's fighting for, etc., etc. So he's the best one. So he comes out with the best scores in the training. So he's left. He gets to automatically bypass the first round of combat. He automatically transitions into the second round. And it's like, it's a good thing that you picked an odd number of combatants then. <laughs> Why did the Eternal Champion pick nine guys? Because And then the second round only works because both Rax and Xavier knock each other out. They do a double KO. Yes. <laughs> Which is something you can do in the game as well. Sure, but it's only facilitated by the need to have an even number of combatants for the tiers of the competition. Yeah. Uh, Michael Cook there trying to make that whole setup work. Michael Cook, the writer of the regular Eternal Champion strip in Sonic the Comic. I think he's done a perfectly good job here. I think this is a, a bang-up adaptation. Yes. Um, what does he do for us other than this? Anything? In Sonic yeah. the Comic or in general? No, in Sonic... Well, yeah, no, I just think, in general. Uh, What's he ever done for us? <laughs> uh, he was the writer for Kid Chameleon. Uh, yes, well. of course he was, yeah. And uh, again there, he had a very interesting take on the material. This is a lot, mm. a lot more like grounded in the actual game and what it's supposed to be like. Although it has this twist. Do, I, as far as I can tell in my research about the game... It doesn't do the thing where, aha, actually all along you were forming a team. It really is one person's winning. Oh, yeah. Game. Yeah, no, you hit to the end of the game. And I think they're just text endings. I don't think there are any images or anything. Not like there's any chance of me beating Eternal Champions anytime soon to find no. out, as I said in a previous episode. No, and nor me. But the way the game ends, yeah, you just get a little text ending that describes what happens when the winning character gets to, uh, I think, they get they get to live, so... Because one of the important things that we, we might have mentioned it before in the main podcast is that the Overlord is not mentioned in the game. Mm. Like, I, I have read the story of the game uh, by playing it, so he's not part of it. The idea of the characters forming a team and fighting through history to prevent the creation of this AI, the Overlord, that is part of this external media setup to adapt the concept into other stories to, to turn them into like an X-Men-like team instead of, of nine guys in a beat-em-up just fighting one another. Yeah, because otherwise they wouldn't have a common enemy at all. Yeah. And the Overlord becomes the enemy that they, if they were a team, they would be fighting against. Yeah, because the, the final boss of the game is the, the Eternal, Eternal Champion. Champion. Yeah. It's, it's not, there's no baddie, he's just the one that they have to beat to prove themselves worthy to become the new champion yeah so that does that mean then that it isn't this writer's invention either the overlord or the stuff about them becoming a team because there were there were books weren't there there was like adventure game books and stuff yeah there were two game books that wikipedia tells us were published by puffin books um the Eternal Champions Adventure Game Books, The Cyber Warriors and Citadel of Chaos. Good name. And they were, yeah, they were like choose your own adventure books, I think. And it's about, yeah, it's about the champions as a team and the overlord. So it's not clear if Michael Cook invented that idea or if, if this was something... Well, I mean, you know, Sonic the comic is no stranger to using the world of Sega and Sonic the Hedgehog are no stranger to the UK latching onto a piece of unusual promotional material <laughs> that didn't see a lot of use in the rest of the world and making it their own. Well, another way of putting that is that UK's Sonic comics were unique in the fact that they were prepared to go along with the canon. In the fact they were right. Yes. 
<laughs> well, and so anyway, whichever way it goes, Michael Cook here has done, I, I think, a good job of adapting the material mm. right down to, and of course, you know, John Howard drawing it. Because, uh, so, so here's how the game works, right? Each character in the game has a detailed backstory, which we're going to be hearing about yes. as this issue goes on. So I won't go through them now, but the way to access this story in the game, it's not like a, an intro where all the text scrolls. There is one of those, but it's not for each individual character's backstory. Instead, you have to go into the menus and each character has a biog there that you would read. And the reason you would do that is that, as I said before, that this is formulated for home use and for really getting into, pouring over and getting good at. So each character is something you're expected to essentially research and put time into mm. both with your practice because they each have different fighting styles and then with reading the story and then if you finish the game you have to play one character through so mm. when you finish the game depending on what character you use it then tells you what became of them based on this death that their story starts with and the team here have to fit all that backstory or at least a sense of it onto one page yeah. because they've got 14 pages to play with and they don't want to spend... I mean, be, if you properly approach telling the story of each character as if this was the movie, it would take up the whole issue just to do that. Oh, yeah. So they've gone, let's just do it as if it was one page. So what you've got is a single page that, that seems to be like almost shattered up into bits. You've got different panels all the way around the outside, one in the middle that's an explosion-y one, so it kind of looks as if yeah. the like, others could come out. They're all different ships, but yeah. it's the traditional nine-panel grid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but sort of split up with almost like sketchy, footprinty-looking, smashy, odd... It's, it's like someone sprinkled black rice on it in the shape of... Yeah, it, it, it's shaped in just such a way as, as if the eight external panels are all sort of radiating out from the centre panel, and then each panel is just the moment of each character's deaths, and it's described in a single caption Yes, mark. usually with, you know, a, a, something of a close-up on their face going, no, so that you don't... There's nothing violent really to see, except perhaps the middle one where the guy is kind of exploding in a load of lightning. And, um, and it has little you know, little text boxes like 1994 AD, Ninja Assassin Shadow Yamato plunges from a Tokyo tower block and 1962 AD, Warlock and Scientist Xavier is burnt at the stake. And he's there 1692. in... 1692. Oh, what did I say? Sorry. 1962. <laughs> and I was like, gosh. It's all just covered in in this one page and the manner of their deaths is <laughs> there was one that, that made me laugh as it as it turned out it's not quite as silly as it sounds on this page so shadow falls from a tower block oh uh, xavier is burned at the stake oh no tyler is executed by a crime boss oh and rax's body just randomly blows up yeah <laughs> It's a bit more nuanced than that, as we will find yes, out. But when you got to condense these things down to one sentence, it's a uh, 2345 AD cyber fighter Rax Coswell or R A X Coswell's biomechanics self destruct. Now it turns out what they mean is that there's a computer virus that causes them to fail. So okay, and it, all of this leads into basically what they're doing is they're they're couching the fact that this is something that they are going to have to sell to. In, you know, younger children as well as older, or at least it will be accidentally picked up by them. And so they need to couch the fact that this starts with everyone dying in brutal and gruesome ways. Yeah. Like, it's pretty grim stuff altogether. It really is. And so by putting it all on this page, they can put the punchline being, across the centuries, nine great fighters face death in nine different ways, but are destined to share a common end for these nine champions. And then you get the title of the thing. Death isn't forever. And that is quite a clever way of dealing with that, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't... I mean, like, it's a British kids comic, so yeah. to be honest, they could have... The fact that they'd be dead wouldn't have actually mattered terribly much because we're yeah. not 
well, back then at least, British kids' comics weren't terribly squeamish about no. that sort of thing in their in their boys' action adventure strips. No, that's right. I wonder. Uh, it still feels as if that's what they were doing. So maybe it was just because they it was tying in with a slightly more ambiguous what age group is supposed to read it Sonic comic. But um, yes, yeah, possibly. But that well, I could simply be wrong, and it was just a way that they wanted to get through it quickly to be able to tell, I suppose, their own stories. Um, it's, it basically it surprises me that they didn't want to spend the whole issue going through the characters one by one stories, yeah. because that would just fill space easily and there's it must have been difficult for them to figure out what to what to do stories about with this well i mean the thing is and we'll talk more about the personalities as we go is that because the characters were fleshed out as much as they were on sega's end of things yes um it's those personalities that inform like a lot of the characters' actions in these strips and in the regular Sonic strip, they're fully formed characters. They really who are, have yeah. likes and dislikes and specific interplay between the characters. It's all described in the profiles. We'll get to it in a little bit. Um, and it'd be much more interesting to tell stories about that, about mm. the way those characters interact instead of the backstory that got them up to this point, which, You're right, as it turns out, can be summed up in a single sentence. You're absolutely for right. The, for all the purpose that it serves in the greater scheme of the story. That's it. You've hit it on the head. It's that, yeah, if they were to if they were to do what, like, the modern, like, Netflix series version of this story where you do spend time with each one and they're cut between one another and they all die... They wouldn't be interacting in those stories, and that's the most yeah. important thing. Yeah. Like, it'd be very possible to tell stories about virtually any member of the Eternal yes. Champions cast because they are all, they have these detailed profiles. I think, I don't know if he was directed to do this or, or what, but it, it does seem like that Michael Cook zeroed in on Shadow and Larson, mm. um, with Triton as perhaps the primary sort of antagonistic figure among the group. And in this special, Midnight, but Midnight wouldn't really get uh, up to a much higher profile anywhere else in the STC strips. Oh. Like, as I said, the, the second champion strip would be about Larson and Shadow. And back at the start of the STC strips, like, they, they introed with Shadow being the first one to appear, getting that big crashing through the window debut, and she's, the, she's up front on the covers as well. And, like, I don't know, this was the 90s, and this was targeted at young boys, generally speaking, so, I mean, she's... Well, we've talked about how fetishy Eternal Champions and Shadow in particular are, so who knows if they just thought that the boobs spilling out of the bodice was just the thing that would attract the attention of the young male readers that they wanted to pick up the comic, but uh, they definitely decided, like, Shadow was one of the leading figures. And then Larson, maybe because he's just kind of like the, the bloke's bloke type figure. Yeah. Because it's them and Midnight who are essentially the stars of our story here. Uh, as I say, the first round of characters... They all get knocked out very quickly. That's 21st century bounty hunter Jonathan Blade, 19th century revolutionary Jetta Max, Caveman Slash, uh, Alchemist and Warlock Xavier and Cyborg Pit Fighter Rax Coswell all get knocked out in, in, in the space of a page. So this story was not without surprises. Honestly, I, I was genuinely really surprised when he seemed to send the losers back to meet their deaths within a few yeah. pages of this comic. I was like, honestly, how are they going to get out of this? <laughs> I what? You've sent them... Because the premise, of course, is that they are in the middle of dying when he essentially sort of, like, warps them out of that situation and... Yeah, to just a moment before their death. Yeah, so, like, the Atlantean one's got a pillar falling towards him which crushes him. Oh, yeah, this is the premise, by the way, of both the game and the comic, is that the deaths mm. of these people kind of screws up the future because they were each going to do something good that made for a good future 
I believe. Well, no, that that's the premise of the game. Of the game. But I've never re- really read it as the premise of the comic. Oh. The comic always felt more like he'd specifically just selected nine great warriors. Oh, okay, okay. So and and pulled them out of the timeline because they were dead already. I mean, maybe this bit is just me imposing something on it. Well, they were dead already, so that pulling removing them from history wouldn't change anything. Right. Okay. Well, we'll look for that going forward. But in the game, it's yeah. that they. They were supposed to go go ahead and do something really cool, but they they die before their time. That would have prevented. Yeah. But the fact that in the the STC strip they are all sent back in time to work as a team to do other things to stop the rise of the Overlord seems to right. contradict that or, or overwrite it in some capacity. Because it's not mentioned here, is all you know. No. When the, when the Eternal Champion explains to them why why and what he's done this for, it's not because they died before their times or anything like that. No, and that is a slightly odd part of the story of the game. Because as a as a premise, and as a premise for you know even a comic version like this, you know of, of any like fictional team, it's a great premise. The only problem is that it doesn't then mesh with his plan to essentially like whittle them down to one remaining one and send that one back. Yeah. Because when you get to the end of the game, and you get that text. It talks about how that one character then, knowing what their fate was going to be, escaped it and what they went on to do to improve the world. You'd think he'd want them all to succeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, this version of the story actually kind of makes a bit more sense. Yeah, gen- I mean, and it's also, it's the more exciting version and it's the one that lends itself to more stories than the one of the game. Yeah, was, you know. that's it. Because more of them survive it. <laughs> Like, there's a very... I think we drew this comparison before. I think it was Abby drew it in the first place, but we both agreed with her, was that that it's kind of a Chris Claremont's X-Men vibe. A team of really diverse, differently powered, differently formed characters who have this complex interplay with one another. Like, there's a lot of aggression and dislike between certain characters, and then someone's buddy up and get along well. There's some romantic tension between some characters, and there's other ones who just don't like each other at all. Yeah, it's a great setup. And there's a lot of focus on a special training room, which is an X-Men thing, isn't it? Oh gosh, it's super danger roomy, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, with it shooting lasers and buzzsaws and stuff out of the wall at you, and it'll, it'll receive more focus in one of the later stories in this special, but yeah, it's it's very danger roomy. I mean, it's it's right out of the game, so they didn't just add it into the, the story to... Uh, yeah. to amp up the X-Men comparisons or anything. Oh, is it? Me. Is that is that how you train yeah, in yeah, the game? Yeah, the practice mode is... Uh, oh, I mean, it's, cool. not, it's not quite as aggressive as this, but, sure. but yeah. So yeah, look, we're bouncing around talking about a whole bunch of different concepts from the game and the, the strip and everything, because a lot of this strip is... Just, it's a 14-page strip, as you say, and a lot of it is just, it's just characters fighting. Um, I mean, the only fights that are, like, truly of exciting note are, like, Shadow versus Triton. Um, in the, the second round stuff, Shadow versus Triton... Where he really, you know, good, good proper Salbashima style, punch the character out the panel moment, and uh, I mean, I really like Triton anyway. He he was he always mm-hmm. had a lot of visual interest, so I always liked him anyway. He gets a good cover yeah. on the regular SDC comic at one point. He had that hiss in his voice as well. Yes. He had a Triton for a hand. I mean, it's it's cool. I do not like that, you know. Yeah, it took me a while to notice that it's for a hand. <laughs> yeah, he's not just holding yeah. it. And but then, like, it looks like he's probably going to beat Shadow because he is—he's a real tough fighter. He—he he is a gladiator by trade, uh, genetically engineered in ancient Atlantis. <laughs> um, but whenever Shadow does finally manage to beat him, she leaves him with a bloody mouth, and then that sets Midnight off. And there's some—I—I I like a lot of the like the effects that uh, Howard yeah. pulls out from Midnight because basically after Shadow beats Triton. They're going to say to the champion, because she, Midnight, and Larson have all agreed they're not going to fight each other anymore. So they're going to say, right, that's it. We're done. 
we should work as a team instead of carrying on this silly tournament. But the blood awakens Midnight's vampire hunger, and uh, Larson loses the plot with him, and then they wind up fighting just because they're pissed off at one another, not because <laughs> of the tournament. And like this panel here, for instance, like where, where Midnight's hunger awakens, and we have that... that, oh. that the shadow and light rolling across his face is like his eyes glow and his fangs extend. It's it's great. I mean, the art here, there's rarely ever just a picture... Well, is there ever? I'm scrolling through. Just a picture of people standing in a room. This guy likes to put effects and fun stuff in the background. By by fun stuff, I mean effects. I mean different directional swoops, yeah. different colour uh, It's a little too fond of speed lines here and there, you know. They become a bit of a crutch where he just uses them to excite up the picture rather than because they're really neat. Works for me, so... <laughs> I mean, it is nice to look at. But sometimes, I mean, like, look at this one here um, early on in the strip after Larson and Midnight come in to see Shadow in the training room. Well, we where... actually have page numbers at the bottom, so where are we? Oh, we do, that's right. Page five. Okay. <laughs> where Midnight, getting annoyed with, like, Larson's kind of flip 1920s attitude, he grabs <laughs> him by the tie to tell us, you know, I have... What does he say? I've spent a lifetime controlling a vampire's urge to kill. It has been hard... And, I mean, you, and it's like, it's a very posed panel. Yes. You know, yes. there's no real sense of true anger or violence in the physical motions. And he's put that sort of sunburst, almost Japanese imperial flag style in the background. But it, it doesn't. Like, it's visually interesting to look at, but, like, the characters still do look very... They look very posed. They don't I see look, what you mean. Um, it's not really conveyed... No, that's not really a problem much else, because, like, right below, when Trident comes yeah. smashing through them all and then gets into fighting in the room, like, look at that big swing of his arm. <laughs> uh, that, that He's got his whole body rotated, like, 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 over 90 degrees from the force of the swing of his arm. You know, there's a lot of good good action in here, too. But, but there's the odd moment here and there. I mean, and in the broad strokes, it is also significantly less fetish-y under Howard's pen, I think, <laughs> than it was under Brian Williamson's in the regular thing. I mean, some of the character designs make it difficult not to. It's true. I mean, and then, you know, when you look at the first page where we have, like, Shadow and Jetta both fallen, and they're both fallen arse first. Like, you know, their, their <laughs> yes. bodies are twisted in such a oh, way yes. so that the curvature and cleft of their arse oh, is... God, yeah. Fully on display, so <laughs> from two distinctly different angles, but both of them yeah. undeniably arsy. And you can't see uh, the arse of a single bloke. That's on, true. On the pitch. I wonder if that's yeah, right. Yeah. If that's true across the the rest of the comic, because the I mean Shadow Arse Watch twenty twenty all the way through this comic and the uh, the STC ones we've read so far, it's it's like look up Shadow's pants, the comic as much as they yeah. can possibly get it get her twisted round such that we can see up her pants that's what they do but like it's so i mean are, are you in this one here you know where uh, midnight on page seven where midnight kicks jetta and she falls boobs first into the camera <laughs> yes. you know yeah but it is even so it's still somehow like less <laughs> less less juvenile than it was under uh, Williamson's artwork in the first couple of chapters. <laughs> well, this was a they, I mean and this was them leaning very deliberately into that X-Men style audience who of course had had lots of that sort of thing to to enjoy this over is the true. years. I mean in the 90s off the heels of Jim Lee's X-Men more so than at any time before it, probably, to be honest. I don't know who... I think I've told you this before, but I think I cut it out. I don't know which artist it was, but I had an issue of X-Men, and I didn't really know what X-Men was, so I just had this one. 
And it was, uh, I can tell you it featured uh, Cyclops and, I don't know, let's say Jean in bed at one point. That's all I can remember about it. And um, the the artwork in that was so sort of fetishistic and in, in terms of like really explicitly showing the physiques of these characters to a, to a frankly uncomfortable degree that when I copied one of the drawings... Uh, I was uh, one of the men and one of the women. I was doing so because I found it so funny. And when I showed it, to, <laughs> and when I showed it to my mum, expecting her to get the joke, which was, "Can you imagine anyone drawing humans like this ever?" She went, "Yes, let's not show that to Andrew, my younger brother." So, uh, <laughs> so uh, that was my experience of the X Men as as almost like. This is porn, and uh, and here they are. Well, time period wise, that's going to be either Jim Lee or Andy Kubert. I think is probably a solid bet for this. That. Would have de- <laughs> this would have been basically now. This would have been around ninety three sort of time. So if that's where they slot in, well, this is ninety four. Well, I know. Well, oh yeah, all right. One year <laughs> out, okay. Early nineties. <laughs> hey, it could even have been ninety four. The only reason I uh, edited a little bit earlier is that, like, I'm like, surely I knew about like sexualized bodies by the time i was whatever way like 12 or whatever we are here maybe not no little dave yeah and little innocent i I really was i was a proper little cherub hasn't really figured it out yet to be honest folks i don't know what i'm looking at here this is all going straight (laughs) over my head of course we have the shinobi artist here and it he's doing similar things with interesting shapes of panels and backdrops and plenty of big yin yang imagery behind panels and stuff we've got page three is entirely essentially one big yin yang symbol with panels essentially just dropped on top of it in interesting ways very interesting ways actually the way that they've made that symbol kind of fade out behind the panels with with streaks and speed lines is quite interesting but yeah anyway so we're just, we're just kind of rambling describing the fight sequence features in this because it's just a strip full of fights nice art fun fights um lots of bums well executed sets up the whole story and then we can move on to the next part of the comic the champ stamps <laughs> That's that's so British, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, uh, so these are there are nine profiles. So each one owns two pages. Yes. And the left-hand page is a full-page drawing of the character. We think these are probably the drawings by designer Ernie Chan, who created them for Sega, rather than something done for this comic or by STC artists, because they don't look like any of the STC artists. No. They're very nice drawings, too. Yeah, we, we don't know Ernie Chan well enough to know if they're his, so we're just sort of assuming, but they are nice, yes. Yeah. And then on the right-hand side, there is the full bio of the character and the full move set from the game, including all their incredibly awkward special moves, because Internal Champions was not a game that was... No no quarter circle forwards here. <laughs> a lot of charging moves where you push back and then forward and pushing multiple buttons at the same time. Stuff Odd, unintuitive special moves. This was really a game that they wanted you to spend a lot of time with and master yeah. the subtleties of. That seems to have been the whole point of it. It seems as if the idea was that you would, you know, if you showed up around a friend's house with this and you had mastered a character, that made you a master. Mm. And the first round of profiles that we get here are Larson, Shadow, Trident, and Rax. They're great little profiles. Like, we're not going to go through each one individually, obviously, but they're, they're made up of a background, the appearance, mannerisms, likes, and dislikes. I, I presume these aren't, like, verbatim recreations of Sega's bios. I feel like they're probably, like, uh, embellished rewrites. Well, I, I looked into exactly that, wondering the same thing myself. They are embellished, but 
only about as much as, you know, say, Stay Sonic was of that Sonic Bible. There's a sure. lot of, of phrases in common. In particular, uh, when this is what made me look it up. So in the background section, of course, each character, their background is how they died. And so these are, yeah. these are, they don't really pull punches when they describe these. And so the first one, uh, Larson, his story, just to give you an example. Uh, living in an era of organized crime and gangland bosses, Larson Tyler learned his illegal trade under the wing of Mr. Tagliani. When asked to secretly take a package to the head of another crime syndicate, supposedly recovering in a hospital, he instead found the incorruptible chief of police there. Realising he'd been set up, Larson tried to throw the package out of the window, but it was too late. Well, in the game, you get that same story with a bit more detail because they've got more space to play with. But mm. the phrase that got me to, to look this up is the next one that I was frankly a bit surprised they printed because it says, The bomb killed Larson, the police chief, and most of the people in the hospital. So I was going, whoa, that's hardcore. Yeah. Is, is that from the game? And I looked it up and that phrase is almost verbatim in the game, except the game goes on to add, including several youngsters in the children's wing. Bloody Jesus. Yeah. So you can see. <laughs> it was the 90s. We did love our edge. You can see why they cut that out. But also, but the thing is, in the game, it gives you this extra incentive to pick a character because you're like, I need to mm. set this right. I need to fight to survive, to go back in time and stop that from happening like they're good profiles altogether they give you the whole backstory of the character preceding even their deaths yeah i think i mean the appearance section isn't too necessary because there's a great big picture of him yeah yeah but like their mannerisms larson chews gum watches everything like a hawk and then they have these likes and dislikes sections and this talks about like how the the specific relationships between the characters and uh, how some of them like each other and dislike each other or or little things like what is a uh, larson hates pasta yes because it sounds because tagliatelli sounds like tagliani his old boss see <laughs> see that's a but like the dislikes like that they're sometimes they do veer a bit to the cute the tweet. <laughs> yeah. like everyone has developed a really specific phobia based on the circumstances of their death yeah, like it's them. one thing for shadow to be afraid, afraid of, of heights, heights yeah you know trident has an unnatural fear of stone pillars <laughs> <laughs> yeah because a stone pillar collapsed on him during the fall of atlantis like. but in the case of larson that same thing like oh whatever it was that killed him is his big fear well his is a bomb so he's just got straight up ptsd like yeah that is just ptsd really isn't PTSD. it yeah. yeah loud bangs and explosions sets him trembling every time it's like Oh, that's when I. So, so when you're reading these through in order, you're like, "Oh, cool! That's actually like a really adult thing." And then it gets to the point where yeah, it's like, you it's know, sillier and sillier. Has a fear of tight ropes now. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think Jetta is also afraid of heights because she yeah. also fell to her death, which is just this, both the women fell to their deaths yeah. and developed fear of heights. The like section on Trident's, I like that. Like he's friendly with Slash, and like no characters are friendly with Slash, the caveman, <laughs> but. Rex, but but Trident like respects that he's all business, all about smashing and slashing. He respects his brutality, but hates Xavier ever since he heard him speaking Latin because he doesn't like <laughs> Romans because it was the Romans that pushed over the pillar that caused Atlantis to fall and kill him. But what this does do, which I I really 
it got me excited reading these because yeah they're fairly basic but in including which ones of them are friends with which other ones and which ones are enemies with we and the yeah. the ups and downs of their interpersonal relationships on the team you just start writing stories in your head don't you you do it's the it's the best bit of the whole profile it's little touches like that that clearly show that for as little great success as eternal champions would go on to a lot of work really went into developing the characters and crafting personalities and stories for them that that could have led to future success yeah and that well and in many ways did lead to success within the pages of sonic the comic that's and this it. special that's it it's just it's a gift to writers this is all this they the, yeah. the characters being and to artists the characters being developed to look visually different to each other and mm. their personalities written to be about as striking as that oh we didn't mention as well but um it doesn't really play out in the strip because it's hard to do but they each were programmed as video game characters with a different fighting yes, style so real the moves ones. that they throw are all based in real real world uh, martial arts and fighting styles yeah and they, they really i mean we'll find out more about that when we get to the interview but they really put yeah. a lot of effort into into making sure those moves and those martial arts styles were like right that's why every character has a six by five grid on their page that explains what each of the six buttons does relative to their position around the screen because depending on where you're standing on the screen pushing a button will throw a different fighting style move from that from that real fighting it's 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 a really good idea for uh, a fighting game And, and by the way something that's worth mentioning is that we've said a lot about how eternal champions is is gone and almost forgotten now but at the time it actually did really really well it was uh, it was one of the better selling games it turns out oh was it yeah it, it really like it basically did achieve what it was trying to achieve which is to become a contender for your street fighters and your mortal combats and honestly the only reason it fell from grace as it were is because of all that nonsense that happened right at the end of the 90s when sega of japan went yeah, we're going to just pretend none of Sega America's success ever happened, and we're going to take over, and it's all about us now. And so Eternal Champions was... Uh, there was about to be a third one. It was, you know, it, it had been not just solicited, like, advertised even, and then it was suddenly dropped because it wasn't Virtua Fighter, which was all that Sega wanted to promote at the time. And that's oh, what happened okay. to Eternal Champions. And that's what, that's the only reason it's not on any of the compilation games now um although well, well eternal champions is on the mega drive mini is it oh well, there we go so that's evidently they've reversed that stance a little bit so is virtual fighter though <laughs> well but it does make sense because there's a bit less of the old corporate gaslighting going on in the games industry at the moment than there has been for the last few years mm. where they're acknowledging the original robotnik again as i said recently <laughs> yeah these things have started to creep in yeah you know what, what when you mentioned the original release of it one thing i did discover when i was reading about it was that do remember issues and issues and episodes and episodes ago we heard about the sega activator in the news zone the infrared ring that yes! you stood inside yes! of and punched your hands and kicked out in well, this was the second game that ever came with it. Yeah. Yeah, what about the first one? And I thought maybe that could have been part of the reason that it didn't do so well. But, but <laughs> I was very surprised to find that there was such a thing as a second game to be packed in. I know, in. right? Like, I would have assumed that that didn't sell immediately and was immediately discontinued. But no, they did a second package for that thing. I shall read out to you what it says here. Yes, please. It was one of only a few games that actually recognized the activator yeah. and took advantage of most features of the unit. And the player using it was given an advantage of receiving 50% less and and inflicting 50% more damage than the player using a regular controller. 
Oh my! Maybe God. that's why I suck at it. Well, that's that sounds like <laughs> a compensation for a controller that doesn't work very well, doesn't it? Mm, well, do you know what one of the other games that uh, that by the way that was specifically configured to work with the activator was? What was that? Comic Zone. How does that work? Oh gosh, Comic Zone makes absolute sense that something like this would. Is but Comic Zone is that also a fighting game? I mean, I know you're kind of brawling. It's a brawler. It's a scrolly brawler. Yeah, but still, it seems it's on the Mega Drive Mini too. Hey. Oh, well, you're going to have to get yourself an activator for the Mega Drive Mini then, aren't you? Oh, clearly. Uh, do they make them with USB ports these days, do they? <laughs> They're still, still in production, is it? Yeah. <laughs> mm. I mean, but the thing is, this is for definite a six-button game. So I don't know what they're oh, thinking yeah. putting it in without a six-button controller on the Mini, unless it has yeah. one. Uh, it does not. You can buy it, but it doesn't come with Oh, one. you can. Oh, well, that, that, mm. then that explains it. You know, it's some of these profiles, I think it was interesting. Like, I was reading Shadow's profile, for example. And, mm. I mean, we'll get to Jetta's a little, a little later on. But, again, I keep coming back to how fetishistic this was of this character in particular. Are you looking at the mannerisms section? Yes. She appears... Well, aside from the fact that the appearance things describes her as having beautiful porcelain features. (laughs) And then the mannerisms bit says she appears coy and mysterious, almost childlike, quite charming in an innocent Innocent schoolgirl kind kind of of way. But it's all show for she was ruthless and calculating underneath. And it's like... Good God, talk about, like, fat... Like, in all seriousness, like, talk about, like, fetishizing, like, the foreign and the... that, That awful word the exotic you know oh, wow yeah. and but you know what the funny thing is is that that does not in any way never shows form through, shadows it? characterization no. in this special or in She's, stc she is no. forthright she is a boss lady she is all yeah. business in these strips there's none of this coy schoolgirl bullshit and i haven't seen any of it in the game either i think this is just this person was just getting excited well i mean i i, I know i mean i fully believe that this was something that somebody would have written into uh, the characterization of a Japanese ninja woman in yeah. 1994. I believe that wholeheartedly. Oh, yeah. But uh, credit to the creative dreams of the strips that they didn't run with it and just mm. made her... She's essentially the boss of the team in the strips. Yeah. 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 So the narrow escape for her and us there. <laughs> I love this drawing of Trident. I just want to uh, say that. Just, just want to mention that. I just really love it. He's He is pure beefcake. Well, I suppose he's pure yeah. fish cake, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I always had a soft spot for him. I don't know, he's got a trident for a hand. How's that not cool? That's really cool. It's funny though, Rax's profile says his name is Rax. Yes. But but like in the strip, it's an acronym and they write it here in capital letters as if it's an acronym. Oh yeah, and, and there it is. Yeah, yeah. Robotic Artificial Exoskeleton. is That's what he has been cybernetically upgraded to. But under his full name, it still gives it as Rax. Because it, it still like, just under, says Rax. Yeah, under Trident's profile, it says full name unknown. Trident is a nickname. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. There's no, we've no idea what Rax's yeah, real what Rax's name, is. name is, and it's weird that they would even like robotic artificial exoskeleton. Like, why is that even like his name in the context that it's his name? That's just what, what it's like his clothes. Cause yeah, because he's got one. Well, it's not yeah. his clothes. He's been permanently bio bio cybernetically modified to have that. That's not clothes. That's him now. Okay, sure, but that an exoskeleton. In fact, he he is he sounds almost like the, they don't go this route with the character in the strip or anything because he's kind of um he's just kind of a bloke. 
You know, he's not yeah. a blokey man's man. He's just kind of a, a, a nice but dim brawler kind of character. But here, like, it talks about how he's half man, half machine, walks with a jerky robo gait, and his dislikes are the constant pain caused by his exoskeleton yes. conservation and implants. And it's like, you could have gone to some pretty dark places with this character with that. But then I like the idea that the fact that despite the fact that that's what his life is like, he's still, generally speaking, a pretty nice, upbeat guy. Well, and that, again, is it's kind of like um, Shadow's uh, mannerisms. It kind of is at odds with the comic because, yeah, it's, he has to fight because that releases, like, I don't know, some sort of endorphins that that's the only way he can escape the pain that he's in all the time. So fighting is the only way he can ever be happy. And it's like, yeah, that's a really... That's actually a really cool backstory stroke character profile for this guy. But, yeah, he's just sort of quite jolly in the comic, so... first set of profiles though we get the three-page interview with michael latham yes um, a lot of very small text a lot of reading here this is the bit that took the longest to read by far yeah we won't dig too deeply into it but broadly speaking he certainly takes a lot of credit for eternal champions doesn't he to me he comes across as a really like like manager like a business brained man who doesn't quite speak the same language i do like the part where he says I wanted the users to feel like we made this game for any experience they wanted to try. I hope that we succeeded in this goal. It's all management speech. Yeah, yeah. Well, he is the, he was the, he's credited as the game's designer on Wikipedia, yeah. and uh, he's called the producer here. And he and, keeps talking about how, yeah, yes, I wrote the design, and I was writing a new yeah. bit of design. You're like, oh, what? <laughs> It what sounds like he wrote the character's personality profiles at the very it least. It does, and kudos to but it. But he didn't design them, you know. Well, that's the thing, but he says he did, like, or at least he takes credit for the design. Like, he didn't draw them, is what I mean, you know. I think what we're talking about here is that I think he's using the word design to mean, like, that he was like the project lead, and he was like, yeah, we should have them fight in real combat styles, and we should yeah. have them do this and that. Uh, presumably he wasn't doing any of the coding or the drawing or anything like no, that. Oh, he might be doing the coding. Like I, don't think. I think it's really interesting the way that uh, they focus grouped this game, though. Because, I mean, how, how long did they say the development period was now based in this One year, interview? I think it was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's amazing how fast they turn around. Like, like back then, that, even that's kind of like a long turnaround yeah. time for a game when you think about how quickly games were smashed out back in the 90s. And yet, he, he actually boasts that they had to book 11 hotel rooms. On the last month of the project, we actually rented 11 hotel rooms so the entire team could work around the clock without going home. That's, <laughs> not, that's not good, Michael. What do you say, Crispo? Grunge! We don't like that sort of behavior now. Yeah. You hear a lot more articles these days where people are much more more disapproving of that sort of thing and rightly so has been tolerated in video games for far too long yeah. but more and more now you find people speaking out against it so when you see this guy talking jauntily i mean and it's not that he doesn't give credit to everybody that no oh, no game, he does you know? and he does he and he makes but... sure, he, he makes sure to he's always talking about how you know even like play testers will come up with a little idea yeah. and he and he always seems to have taken it all seriously so it doesn't sound like a nightmare to work on but no. it does sound like a very I don't know, sort of job. It sounds like a very corporate-y situation that's yeah. kind of being... i tell you what it is. The way that he's talking to readers and, you know, kids who would be into the game, 
but he's talking to them as if they're shareholders. And he's like, oh yeah, we did it all very efficiently and we, we, we did it with this number of hotel rooms and this number of playtesters and so on. And he, and he boasts about the manual being the largest in Sega of America history. <laughs> yeah, I read that. And, then, and it even notes in the profiles that they couldn't get all the moves into the manual. <laughs> does it? <laughs> it does notice here that did, did the game works best with a six-button joypad. Do you see players with three-button pads missing out on gameplay? Not really. Yeah, he, he says the play. <laughs> he lied. Yeah, exactly. He says that they. He says the, that we had the playtesters play it with and without, and there was no change in their performance. But like, there's got to appear. Yeah, I mean, you like you can't do some of the moves. He talks about a previous version of the game, and and he's making fun of this. He's not saying this is a good idea. That like the the early version of the game that they had to scrap because it was a bit of a disaster. The focus of the game, as he tells it, seems to have been about dwarf beating, and he doesn't say what that means. So we're just left to kind of go, oh no. What do you mean? I'm fascinated by how extensively focus grouped not just the play of the game was, but the whole, the totality of the game and its yeah. roster. Talks about how they, they had figured out 50 very basic character archetypes, like mm. pirate, Indian, whatever, ninja, PI, etc. Yeah. They winnowed that down to, to 20 and then started drawing sketches. And then they, they further whittled that down just to the remaining nine. And we see some design sketches, like a pirate, for example, of things that uh, that didn't make it into the game. Like he, he talks here about how Jetta almost didn't make it into the game because she had low scores from the focus group. Yes, and oh, another thing that they're showing us during all of this is like, early development designs of these characters and so you get three versions of Jetta and and one is a well they describe it here as an Emma Peel type British spy which uh, I looked up <laughs> and that's that's her off that program that's um, from the Avengers yeah that's it Diana, Diana Rigg. Rigg and that is a well let me let me frame it in this way so he's talking about how they had to focus test and focus test and she was doing really badly nearly cut out and then finally they made the final tweaks to her design and character premise and suddenly she was really popular well Looking at the three designs here, you've got the the spy character who's got this big floppy jumper on and, and, and black trousers or leggings and sort of glasses and a sensible hairdo. The next one is this big muscly uh, version of her. But I don't know that she's necessarily muscly. She, she seems to think like so. she's... Like it's a costume that seems to be made up of like various wrappings, but they're they're big and billowing. Oh, you're right there. But anyway, the, but they're so billowing that they, you know, cover all of her body and then some. Mm. And the players apparently didn't like that. And then suddenly they took all her clothes off and mysteriously she's very popular now. Yeah, they just made the, they made the billowing wrapping smaller and tighter. <laughs> credit words due in regards to the whole game in general and development of the individual personalities and the designs but there's both the women are these fetishy outfits yes now i don't know if that improves at all but uh on the mega cd release of the game which introduces a ton of new characters there's suddenly a lot more women in it there's a the balance oh, is, is a lot more evened out i wouldn't say it's evened out because i haven't looked at all the characters but there's a lot more women in it um but it also the showing you these concept designs leading up to the final design really shows you what a difference a good artist makes to this stuff. yeah right because if you look over to the left at, at warlock you know oh dear they're so bad you've got two early versions of him um one is kind of just like a guy just a man yeah. stood there with a with a, a twisty staff but he's just a guy he's got like oh they had the staff nailed from yeah. day one like yeah but... <laughs> he's just a bloke with like blonde 80s hair and a shirt pink and shirt trousers. pair of jeans and then the next one is like almost the final design except the colors are a bit off he's now he's a bloke in a sort of warlock hood and 
And what's the name? Uh, Jerkin. What's the name for that sort of little skirt and top combo that he's got there? I don't. A tunic? Yeah. With and it's got sort of an elaborate amount of stars and moons on it. But then the final design is is basically that, but without the stars and moons. But it's just drawn so. I mean, well. also not the bare legs and knee socks. <laughs> true, <laughs> These are but uh, probably even probably the thing that's throwing it off the most. True, but even there, you can see that as more of a color difference than anything else. You know, the 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 sort of the boots and the you know replace the legs with trousers. We just color them in. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's it's the bare yeah, but bare legs. And I mean, <laughs> he see they they look like they don't look like boots. They look like he's wearing gym socks pulled up to his knees. That's like precisely what they are. Yes. With this- <laughs> Little, with his little buckled plimsolls on. Um, yes. So not only did they refine the designs, but they basically just hired someone really good to draw them, which I can't help but imagine had a hand in the final stage of those designs as well. And he closes out the interview um, where they talk about special editions and future editions mm. of the game. They said they were planning a 32 meg version, which was codenamed Eternal Plus. We can't find any evidence that that happened. But they do talk about how they were going to make a Mega CD version, which did happen. It was called Eternal Champions Challenge from the Dark Side. A Game Gear version, which I don't think that happened unto itself, but he does talk about how they had a couple of standalone games for Larson and Shadow Plant, and those did happen. Yes. Chicago Syndicate yes. for the Game Gear, which was the Larson one. And then Experts, which was for the Genesis. Oh, I said Genesis. Oh, uh, Christopher. Uh, it's, no, it's because I'm reading off Wikipedia. I swear to God, Dave. Okay, 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 Don't okay. kick me off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that one, um, if you've in the Mega CD game, when you fit, well, or maybe in the Mega Drive one as well, but I suspect only in the Mega CD sort of remake, when you finish the game as Shadow, the scrolling text tells you that she's recruited um, straight away after her little ending scene to go and be in the experts. So. I believe the the Larson the Chicago Syndicate the Larson game is the same syndicate. It, it's sure. set in the reality where he survived the end of Eternal mm. Champions and went back for for revenge on the mob. Yeah, I yeah. thought for a while. What I mean, I did not know those games existed for a long time. But when they came out, I assumed at first that they must have been what the second. Um, uh, STC script was based on because it was set in the 1920s about Larson back at his life fighting the mobs and then Shadow came in so I assumed they were produced to tie into them but then I looked at it and they didn't come out till like 1995 yeah. uh, a year or two after that strip had happened already so just a fun coincidence Although maybe because they knew that even at this stage that yeah. they were going to do spin-offs about those characters, maybe that's why they chose to make the second strip be about them. Could be, yeah. So in this interview, of course, they're just talking about the game here. This is proper game stuff. This is this really gives you the sense that this is a a, a handbook for fans of this game. But there's a noticeable lack of mention anywhere in this all the way through of of really one of the key aspects of the game. So like. Mortal Kombat um, stood out from Street Fighter 2 in that it had these famously gruesome bits. You know, you had the mm. pulling the spine out and, the, and of course, the, the Mega Drive version, you know, had the blood. Eternal Champions, of course, was trying to compete with both Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat. And the way mm. in which it competed with Mortal Kombat is that it featured gruesome, gruesome, revolting, brilliant fatality animations, the likes of which I've still never seen in anything other than that recent 3D Mortal Kombat game that really, I think, went a step too far with the way that it showed you their bodies being ripped to pieces and so on. Mm. Um, 
Have you seen the fatalities in this game, Chris? I've seen one or two, but I guess I haven't seen the worst ones because I just the one uh, the only one that comes to mind is is on Trident stage where you get like eaten by a plant or something, so you don't really you don't really see anything. Okay, no, there's one where someone gets put in a, a machine not unlike the one that creates Doctor Manhattan, and you get to see his entire like body being dissolved layer by layer. Ooh, it removes his intrinsic field. Yeah, there's one where the character is falling down a giant shaft of blades and buzz saws and you get to see them completely cut to bits in fact let me show you that one and you can see what i'm talking about okay so this is the one where they're going in what i described as the dr manhattan machine okay well it's just a ball of light it's not so bad yeah Ooh. well okay then that's uh (laughs) yo Oh, flipping hell. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so that's one. Keep it playing for the next one. That, that'll, that'll do. Go check these out yourselves, boomers. These are... Are you now watching the one falling down the shaft? Yes. Overkills. They ca- Oh, goodness. <laughs> Overkill was right. Oh, they're not done yet? Nope. <laughs> oh, his head's off. <laughs> Oh, God! Another one! (laughs) He just keeps falling into more layers of knives. I was going to say, what's going to be left? Bonk. (laughs) So, goodness gracious. Never have I seen more extreme, more gory, like, finishing moves in any fighting game to this day. Yeah, I've never seen those ones before. Wow, that is... Absolutely uh, amazing. And the thing is, and then, you know, the Mega CD version just takes them to the next degree. Maybe, I don't, we may be watching the Mega CD one here. Um, Yes, we are, actually. So I don't know what they were like in the original game. But, one. so yeah, one of the characters of this game was these incredible, extremely gory sort of special effect moves there's one in a minute where someone gets hit by lightning and they just turn into a an open corpse with all their organs falling out and the blood spurting out of the heart directly through the rib cage it's like ridiculous pretty much they don't go deep into mentioning these in the stc adaptation do they really yeah until i um started playing the game on the mega drive mini and read a little bit about it i i had no idea that was even part of it yeah because in you know in my headspace for eternal champions that's just it just doesn't match up with the image i have of it at all and it, it is so clearly as you say an attempt to uh to compete with mortal Kombat. yeah so what we have here is a fighting game that's Native to the Mega Drive, not a conversion, so you know you're playing the best version. Well, at least until they bring out the Mega CD version, that is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's got these incredible overkill videos. Each character has a proper history to them, backstory, personality, so you're interested in them individually. It looks like the X-Men, so it's kind of, you know, fits in with what the current thing is in that sort of world. And it uh, boasts that each character is fighting what is an actual real-life, real martial art, and their moves are, are based on that. It really sounds dead good. But it's also got vampires and fish people. Yes! Ninjas. It sounds great. I think they've made a really good game here. Yeah, and sadly that's not how it worked out, but they did manage to make a good comic strip out of it. 
it lent itself perhaps to a more entertaining comic strip than it did to a fighting game maybe maybe i think we should talk to someone who was into it because it sounds like one of those where you pick it up on the first day you're going to hate it but you work yeah. at it and it's going to be awesome so listeners if you in the 90s had this game and this is you if you worked at this and became an expert Get in touch, because I want to know if this was as good as it sounds, because it's certainly... We don't now have the capacity to play it and find out. (laughs) Reality Check, written by Michael Cook again, this time with pencils by Brian Williamson, inks by Stephen Baskerville, colours by Don B. Cox, and letters by Richard Byrd. At the Eternal Champion's suggestion, Rax and Shadow explore the dystopian future Earth ruled by the Overlord. The pair happen upon the Dream Bank, a virtual reality arcade where players become so lost in the game that their bodies in the real world wither and die. When the pair refuse to join the game, robot security guards attack and almost trap Shadow in the machine, but the pair manage to deactivate the Dream Bank and free the trapped humans who help them defeat the robots. Now this story takes me back to something that I was saying uh, I don't mean like nostalgically. I mean, I, I refer you back to something I was saying earlier in the episode. I'm surprised they didn't want to simply adapt the story of the Eternal Champions because by immediately jumping to their own sort of present day premise for, for them already being a team, it means you now have to make up your own stories. And, and what do you yeah. do there? What they've done here has nothing to do with Eternal Champions. Like, the only way it ties in is that the Overlord is an AI that the VR in the story syncs you with, but, like, the Overlord is just from the comic anyway. Well, it has nothing to do with the, the premise of Eternal Champions, but, like, the, the the idea is rooted... I mean, the character interaction, the decision to pair Shadow and Rax together in a story is rooted in the in the characters, which is that, that uh, Rax has a crush on Shadow. That is, but here's, I suppose, what I'm saying. This is a story that could fit into almost anything that's got a bit of a futuristic bent, a bit of a sci-fi bent. This is your typical better-than-life style, uh, in the books, I mean. In the future, virtual reality is something that you can die of. David, context for our readers with the better-than-life remark. (laughs) Sorry. So Red Dwarf um, has an episode in which they're playing a virtual reality game, and uh, when Red Dwarf was turned into novels, they expanded this out so that... you have game heads, people who've connected themselves into the virtual reality at the expense of their physical body because their lives in the game are so much better than their lives out of it that they wither and they die and they aren't even aware that they're dying. You just keep it on. There's no reason why you'd want to take it off. And of course, The Matrix, similar yes, idea there. That's what I was going to say. This is essentially like better than life crossed with The Matrix. And presumably all of this comes from something that Gibson wrote that I haven't read yet but this idea of the the virtual reality that you can go into and it's you think it's the real world so you never get out and you and your body dies that isn't uh, this is the eternal champion special and already in the second story we're into a story that isn't really it doesn't have to be the eternal champions for this to be the story and i think that there's nothing wrong with that but no it's nothing it fits within the world of uh, i mean i know what you're saying but it's like the, the whole overlord dystopian future bit like that's yes that's core to what the strips do yes so this is just i mean to be honest though it is a weird one because like we have this idea that like there's this creepy robot barmaid with this fixed rictus grin in this place yeah who says the overlord provides for every need human thought and imagination are redundant when they enter the dream bank and if they refuse, Rax says, and then the robots show up to try and shove them into the dream bank. And it's like, 
uh, okay, but there are like half a dozen people just walking around on the street outside. So <laughs> what's up? What's the deal? <laughs> it's like it presents a dystopian world where this can happen and that it's the will of the overlord and that it must happen to everybody but also there's a populace just trucking around outside trying to get on with life under this cruel machine overlord yeah like the two things don't match up it's not a matrix type scenario where uh like i, I would get it if it was more of a better than lifestyle thing where people did it voluntarily because they wanted to escape the hell world that they've wound up in mm. and, and and it's better yeah so shadow gets this helmet this vr helmet put on her and as, as soon as it's on, she's like, wait, oh, wait, I love it. It's so peaceful. She doesn't want to leave. As yeah, soon- I like that it's not a like a tangible illusion of a better yeah. life or a better world. It's, uh, she, well, she calls it herself, what's the word she uses? She's a narcotic. Mm. She just enters a sort of transcendental, non-specific bliss. It's just a mental yeah. high that removes her from the worries of uh, the yes. world. And I love that they, they, they render it as just like, she just, she, her figure like cast in this neon pink and green floats in like a yellow digital void. Like, yeah, and, they, and that's, that's a whole panel. And, and no text, no captions yeah. or anything. So it just yeah, sums no up speech. the like the psychedelic colors sell the unearthly high nature of the thing, while the silence sells the bliss. That that's really good, strong like economic art and storytelling. Boom, just yeah. hitting you with that idea and one that it can then. Then the next panel is Rack still fighting around her while we see Shadow's pose in the robot's hands, mirroring yes. uh, the 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 dreamlike dancing drift it's she's doing great. through the digital void. Like that's that's good. Now, yeah, we should mention the the, the art on this one. Um, this is by Brian Williamson, who is the artist for the first several parts of the serial over in STC. But he has been inked by uh, Stephen Baskerville instead of inking his own work. So, I don't think we know Stephen Baskerville, do we? Uh, anybody who's read Transformers will ah. know Stephen Baskerville as the inker who really brought Andrew Wildman's pencils to life. And anybody who has read Real Ghostbusters would know Andrew <laughs> Wildman's work from that. But but yeah, uh, and with him on the inks, uh, it takes on quite a different look mm. from uh, Williamson's work on, on the thing. It's much uh, crisper. Very very uh, sharp lines and uh, a lot of uh, very nineties cross hatching, and also the colors are by Dondi Cox, who I don't think we would see uh, anything of on the regular uh. STC, to my memory. In fact, to be honest, the uh, the idea of somebody penciling a strip and then someone else inking it is practically alien to Sonic the Comic. Oh gosh, you're right. You actually, got, yeah. Uh, when, when you got two credits on, it was usually somebody had done the line art and then somebody else had done the colors. But in this case, it's a full pencils, inks, colors affair. I mean, it's all just credited to art on the main strip, but the fact that I know Stephen Baskerville is an inker means that I know that that's how the credits break down. So, I suppose a lot of I'm tempted to say all virtual reality stories are drug allegories, but this one... Well, they don't have to be, but in the 90s, whenever cyberspace was really hot and the idea of virtual reality was a cool new concept, it was very easy to marry it with our big anti-drug push that our media was having around the same time as right. well and you could you, so therefore you could tell a story about the dangers of addiction without actually having to touch on any of those nasty real world drug things exactly so and what you're doing is you're plugging into a, a different you know what you could say is a hallucinogenic different reality so it's a surprise to me that this children's comic is the one that the most closely leans into that by having it be that to her it, fe- it it's not oh I'm in the matrix it's not a pretend life that you're fooled into thinking you have it really is just that it feels great but is killing you that's yeah that's all yeah that's quite impressive because it's it's not to stress it's not as if this 
five-page strip, because that's all this is. It's not as if this is some big anti-drug no. strip or anything. It just no. happens to be a device included in the strip. In fact, Shadow makes the point that the moral is more about human dreams and imaginations are worth more than this digitized bliss. Oh, that's so cool. No, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice one. I thought it was fun to read. The skull robot-looking guys, they were great fun. The actual wasted skull-like body of the person yeah, whose yeah. helmet they take off, fantastically good. scarily drawn. It's, it's all really cool. It's a slightly odd story to get in a special like this, yeah. though, I think you'd agree. Whenever we've just had a 14-page strip that's like, here is the origin of everything, this is how mm. it all began, and eh, here's a five-page drug metaphor. Well, yeah. It's a British comic, so multiple strips were to be expected, but okay. that first strip, eh, not just in terms of like production values or anything, just in what it was conceptually, is a hard act to follow. Yeah. And so this strip, and, and the third one, which we'll talk about in a minute, they are afterthoughts. But that they managed to be as entertaining in, in their own way as they are, as to their credit. But but it, it's hard to not to see them as just kind of being afterthoughts in this bigger special. I think that's kind of what I meant when I was talking about how it didn't feel like it was to do with the Eternal Champions. I think if it was me, I'd be wanting to make something a bit like this, but with more characters. Frankly, having a five-page strip isn't a good idea. No, th- not when it, like first of all, like you have to only make it about two characters. Yeah, not that you can't do that because again, yeah. that's what they do with the final strip yeah um but uh the eternal champions as a concept it's just something that lends itself to bigger stories yeah and that's what you know we've got a big six-part serial going on about the fight for the soul of the future and stopping the rise of bio key technology over in the main book and then over here there's just this little side story that it's it's hard not to see as being a little throwaway not because of the quality of the strip no it's just because of the nature of the strip yeah yeah yeah. i'm not knocking the production or the artwork or the way the strip has come out it's just it's just the nature of it it's hard not to see it that way i think what we really could have done with here is a a part one and a part two for the first strip or no for the first strip keep as it is and then for the rest of the book have a part one of a story then the character profiles and whatnot we're going to have in between and then part two of an ongoing story so two stories in the comic i don't know uh two story no i mean rule of threes Ah, uh, true you gotta have three strips uh okay but i can't think of a way you could have satisfyingly done that uh, that, that meets our little complaints here no probably split the origin one into two parts there you go and put that at the start and end of the special there you go yes and then the little stories in between and then probably what you would have done would have been reframed these other two stories to be stories set during the training period and yeah. then the second part of the main strip could have been about the actual tournament fight so that yeah. the stories that we got in the middle happened when they fell in the special but yeah. you just space out the events a little more. I think the reader will think I don't like this uh, special very much. And I do. I was surprised myself because this is not the kind of comic I'm into. I find it difficult to read these sorts of sort of 90s style superhero team comics because I don't know. They're all just humans with different hats on. But this I liked. Maybe it's because it's tied in with STC, but I didn't used to like it at the time. It's all new that I like it. But when you have that in, it helps, you know. Yeah. And also, you're approaching it with an adult mind now, so yeah. you know, you're more receptive to the simple quality of the thing versus like, oh, it's people. I don't like it. Like when you're a kid, you know. Yeah. Plus, if I, if even with adult eyes, anytime I would try and read, say, X Men, for example, I can enjoy it, and I have enjoyed it. But there's always yeah. that lingering sinking feeling. It makes me feel bad that I know 
I'm only reading the latest of decades and decades of comics that I'm never going to be able to read. And I know that that doesn't always matter, but it always weighs on me. Whereas with this, this is it. This is all there ever is. Oh, well, that that is true. Yeah, but I mean, uh, I feel like in order to read... Do you mean do you get that feeling when you read the Beano? No, but that's because in the Beano they don't go see issue 231 every two pages. True, true. You're right there. <laughs> Yeah, so these have more of those cute touches, like 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 I love like for instance, let's just look at the first one here on Xavier's is like it's just his likes section just ends with telling us he likes hot spicy food. Oh, <laughs> so that's just such a nice little thing. This is the sort of stuff that you would get out of Japanese fighting games and Japanese video games and Japanese manga in general, you know, where yeah. the, the creators would go so far as to list their um, favorite foods and their blood types and stuff. Yes. And you get that in a lot of manga. Um, and it's just little touches that, that make them feel like more rounded characters. Yeah, so I suppose that's what they're, yeah, because they're, they're, they'll be looking at Street Fighter and its uh, spin-off merchandise and stuff for inspiration here, won't they? And, uh, well, I suppose he, this guy comes from the 17th century, where they wouldn't have really had what we think of now as spicy food. <laughs> yeah, I suppose not. He's from um, Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, I can't imagine they had uh, very exciting curries in Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. Like, he's the biggest d*** on the team, too. But I like <laughs> how the thing is able to frame it, you know. He's garrulous and a bit of a know-it-all. Yeah. Uh, he has little time for the ignorant or the untutored. And of course, he was burned at the stake, so he's terrified of fire, and Jeddah's terrified of heights. And Slash, uh, um, uh, actually, I like that he's not afraid of rocks or anything, because he got <laughs> he he fought he invented fire, and he was stoned to death for it. But it just all he dislikes is Midnight and Xavier because they're like and monsters. I do think it. I I love that they've leaned into the fact that we have a man here who was burned deliberately by people with fire so he hates fire and the man who invented fire on the same team and because of that like Xavier basically hates him because he's the fire guy Midnight's though uh, like the font on his is much smaller because he's yeah. got a whole notes section talking about how he doesn't blink and hungers for blood and everything and you really got to squint to get in there whoever it was that did the scans for STC did not take that into consideration it's very difficult yeah. to read at this low resolution why did he like like he originated in the 20th century but uh -huh. he lived for over 130 years so mm -hmm. early 21st century he died he's a scientific he's not a real vampire he's one of them morbius types what made himself in a lab but they have this weird like he was killed with a magnesium stick mm. why is it why so specific and then they get the real i mean we're talking about the cute twee dislikes it's like oh midnight has sworn never to work with magnesium again not <laughs> gonna get very far in the bloody lab if you're gonna rule out like base elements you're gonna work with <laughs> Yeah, he's never going to be able to do that thing where you put your special lensed goggles on and set fire to the end of a strip of magnesium and it's really bright. Can't do that <laughs> science, can you? With Midnight, this is what I was referring to earlier about the gloomy stories that they have. So Midnight isn't just a vampire. He's a guy who developed an elixir of life. And this, I, I don't quite know how, it, both by looking into the game or by reading this, but it turned him into this vampire and then that was used as the basis of world war three yeah right grim they kind of gloss over that point in this like yeah they talk about how millions had been contaminated during a third world war but they just sort of skip over the point where the fact that the government took it and used it for that evil purpose yeah 
So in the game, that gives you a reason to play as Midnight, other than the fact that he's a cool vampire. Because you're, if you win as him, he gets to go back and save the... It's, I think it's 95% of the entire Earth's population from dying in World War Three. In fact, you can stop World War Three. And then there's another one where someone's developed another vial. Um, I think it's a different character. Um, one of them's developed another vial, and if it's ever released... Oh, that's Bleard. Yeah, right. He didn't develop it. He was trying to recover it. That was right. his job as a bounty hunter, and was to recover this virus. And the way his story ends is that the virus escapes and kills him. And kills him. And the last thing he sees is the shattered vial, re- meaning yeah, that so the whole earth is going to be taken over it by got this virus out there, now. Yeah. So either way, you have to pick him or Midnight and... Each of them has to save the entire world. And if only one of them survives, the entire world definitely dies one way or the other. So, yeah, I certainly prefer the story where they're all the victor and they all get to survive. Although they seem to have taken away the bit where they inevitably go back to stop their death and their story. But, hey, if this had all carried on, that, I guess, would have been the end point of the series. I guess, yeah. But it'd be interesting to see how the comic would have reconciled that, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah if, they'd, if they'd had the opportunity to provide an ending. But, I mean, strips about other Sega games were starting to be on the way out. Mm, yeah. Except for Decapitec. <laughs> Xavier is the only champion Midnight speaks to, other than polite courtesies. Of course, we've seen in the strips that's not true, for he's chatting away to yeah. Shadow and Larson in the course of the thing. But I presume they mean, like, in uh, their off time. Which is interesting, then, that the profiles are written from the perspective of the characters having off time <laughs> and not being in a tournament all the time. Yeah, but it's such a good setup for a series. Um, uh, there should have been more of it, frankly. Mind you, do you know who really, really gets the short end of the stick here? <laughs> Go on, tell me. It's Blade. It's not. <laughs> Not just that he gets the short end of the stick. It's actually it's really bad. He's the only African-American yeah. character in the team. And the entirety of his characterization is angry black man. He's a former cop who got uh, fired to, to hush up a scandal whenever he beat up a suspect. First of all, wouldn't it be nice if that's what happened in real life? Yeah. <laughs> and then he became a bounty hunter. And it says, like, his distinguishing feature is his temper, which yeah. he usually manages to keep in check. But if he blows, you don't want to be within five miles of him. And then under the, there are, there are no separate likes and dislikes sections. It's just likes slash dislikes, none that he will admit to. So literally, <laughs> his entire characterization is angry black man. There's nothing to build upon for character interactions or little things that he likes and dislikes there's no idea of his place within the team or how he deals with anyone else in here and like blade is the member in my mind that i always forget about because i don't think he ever does anything in the strip Uh, like i remember all the other characters whether for moments in the strips in this special or for moments in the in the serial but blade you're the writers aren't given anything to work with they're given a really bad caricature yeah this is uh, there's there's and and there's other stuff in this comic that wouldn't stand up to scrutiny now, like the fact that in the strip we've just had, well, it opens with uh, Rax massively punching a woman in the face, and then when he does it again later on in the strip, he says, "Sorry about that, babe, but you'll thank me in the morning." And of course he means because he's Frida from the uh, you know from the VR thing, but like I don't know, I feel like there's there's a there's a few bits here that these days would. Uh, perhaps get rewritten before they went ahead uh yeah i think you're right there and some costumes that might be redesigned too (laughs) maybe i don't know how much better those are brains and brawls written by michael cook pencils by brian williamson inks by bambos giorgio colors by una fricka letters by tom frame 
Xavier watches with amusement as Slash fights for his life inside the Eternal Champion's mechanized training room, lacking the intelligence to turn the deadly machines off. Jetta rescues the caveman, who quickly comes to blows with Xavier for mocking him. To help Slash, the Eternal Champion orders the training room fitted with simpler controls that he can use, but no sooner is it complete than Slash hurls the scornful Xavier inside and uses the new controls to lock the alchemist in and give him a taste of what he so enjoyed watching Slash experience. Just a little comedy one to wrap things up. And again, explicitly an X-Men comedy episode, isn't it? Oh, very much so. This is this is more the danger room than anything. Yeah. But again, one that, like the second one, where the characterizations are all tied up in what we know already. Like we have right. Xavier's literally just watching Slash fight for his life for five hours inside the danger room because he doesn't like him very much and thinks it's funny. Uh, yeah. And I have, like, look, I've not read a lot of X-Men, but one of the things I have read is, you know, when they brought out that essential X-Men book and it was like, here's the first sort of, you know, 20 issues or whatever that they ever did. And this is like one of them. This is like early days. Days X-Men where Danger Room goes bad. And they're just bantering with each other, and it's just sort of these pictures of generic human faces laughing at each other. Um, that's that. That's kind of how that read, and uh, and here it is again. Yeah, no, because this just when you talk about generic faces, like here's like this is Brian Williamson again who did the second strip, but with a different inker. You see how different it looks. It looks totally different. Yeah, like not as good, bluntly. Uh, well, but there's a lot of. Um, and again, and this is something this is something that I've always I appreciate the skill behind it and can't do it, but it has never quite appealed to my eye is this style of thing where you've got uh, so the first panel is a perfect example of it. A giant meaty body made up of cords yeah. and cords of of like meticulously cross-hatched musculature with just a head glued onto the middle of that big shape looking out at you and then multiple times throughout the comics such as on the opposing page that more or less you might as well say same head looking out of you from a slightly <laughs> different meaty blob of muscle and then the whole comic ends on the same head again laughing out of you at the panel that is a style i've never liked what is going on with that knee on page one it, 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 yeah that's how that's how superhero knees sometimes get drawn as big knots of conkers man that's not he's got like four kneecaps it's like uh what's the thing they have in thundercats where it's four balls in a cluster it looks like that oh, tigra's bolo whip <laughs> there you go bolo whip yeah <laughs> is that a, a thing bolo for... whip for a knee are there bolo whips in real life or is it just in thundercats yeah i think so yeah, it's just like weights to pull the whip isn't it? so yeah that <laughs> but like while this strip is mostly about uh xavier and slash i do like like the little role jetta has to play yeah, in it because good. we get the like i mean this we didn't mention this when we were looking at the profiles like but like in slash's profile for instance it notes that um he likes jetta he's very fond of her yes um but because he is just like a, a beast like she uh I mean, then it says over in jetta's profile um she dislikes slash who seems brutish towards her it's oh. like she just can't get a read on what he actually thinks of her like i don't mean he calls her in this trip he calls her golden hair so there's a bit of a bit of a king kong bit of a beauty in the beast thing really is what's going on there <laughs> but uh but um yeah but even though she doesn't like him very much she still jumps in to save him that's nice i just i, li I like that little interplay yeah and and of course i've just realized that beast is one of the original x-men so they're doing a lot of, there's a lot you know the the fact that one of them is basically beast the fact that one of them is called xavier there's so much X-Men <laughs> crossover here, and it's 
And I don't think it's deliberate. I think it's just common DNA, common superhero DNA of the period. You know, I don't think they're literally setting out to be the X Men, but not in. I don't think this comic is setting. I I think what's happened here is that this comic is by people who themselves enjoy the X Men. So you've got a script from early X Men drawn in the style of contemporary X Men. Meanwhile, over in the development of the game, I think they were looking at stuff like X Men and, and making it look a bit like that. So the, this dna is so common that the two things are so yeah. meshed and similar to each other that it's inevitable that they would turn out a similar yeah. product it's it's in the game and it's just impossible that people making a comic of it wouldn't yeah inevitably unintentionally inexorably just yeah. just wind up drawing it out of the source material that's it if this wasn't a, a similar comic to x-men it would mean that they'd missed the point yeah it would be a little bit like you know how um the wonder boy comics looked nothing like the the game and you thought yeah. well, what were they doing and i was wondering then what are they into that they'd, they'd rather be doing here what they're into marries perfectly what they're being asked yeah. to do <laughs> like even this bit in the middle here where like they get slash out of the room they bandage up his wounds and he's he's fine yeah. in short order you know he's a hardy type you know yeah. and um the champion summons xavier in to say what's up dick? why are you such a <laughs> and xavier just makes fun of slash and then slashes up off the table and the pair of them are hammering at each other with their sticks <laughs> and clubs right away you know classic superhero yeah. in team fighting yeah you know not everybody's gonna like each other honestly like it as an adult it makes perfect sense that they would so correctly approach this type of material this reads like it's from one of those british reprints of american comics it just feels like it's out of that and i think at the time i, I saw that as an incongruity because i was like how do the people like the people who are making sonic the hedgehog comics for people for readers like me how have they so completely shifted in style to a totally different sort of comic that I happened not to be into? And of course, the answer is, this has to be what they were reading. This has to be what they were into, because it's so, so correct to that sort of tone. There's nothing separate. As far, maybe I'm, And I'm not a reader of these kind of comics, but the ones that I have read, they were just like this to me. So Of the, of the period, definitely. Of the period, yeah. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong about that. If there's, I'm sure connoisseurs would see huge differences, but to me, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, but but just like you know, the base DNA is, is yeah, it's irrefutable. You know, the producers here of STC claim to have an in at the development team of Eternal Champions, which may simply have been that when they interviewed him, they talked to him for a bit longer than is than is printed. But it yeah. might be that they had a back and forth going on with him. Who knows? Um, but it, it really seems like because of that little connection that they've claimed to have between the development of this game and the comic, it makes it feel like a, and in fact, the official product of the game. And so... But that was always what we felt with Sonic the Comic one way or the other. Yeah, I, for, I don't know why I think with this a little bit more. Well, this is probably because even at the time we watched this come into being around us. That's it. Of there it is. Finding sonic the comic after after the games itself and then quite clearly and correctly of course reading the the comics as the true and proper and correct adaptation yes. of the games yeah. whereas this is something that we we watched take shape around us so this feels like the coming into being the birth of what could very comfortably have lived on to be a long-running superhero comic series yeah and it yeah. didn't and that's kind of a shame in a way So 
us to the end of the Eternal Champion special with this rather nifty pinup on the back cover. It's great, and they haven't ruined it by writing pinup on it. No, just uh, the uh, uh, nine ultimate warriors fighting across time for the soul of the future. Rather lovely out there by Cliff Robinson. It's really cool, and it draws the yeah, characters... Yeah, quite, quite different from any yeah. of, the, of the strips in the comic. Especially yeah. since in my, you know, p- uh, PDF, the two pictures of Slash, the one that's the final panel of the final comic, and this one are kind of lined up next to each other, and so you can really see a great difference in almost every aspect of his design he's got bigger teeth in the back page is it the back page we assume it's the back page yeah yeah no i I remember this was the back Ah, page of the comic yeah he's got different eyebrows that are quite you know blonde instead of just scribbles and uh (laughs) that's rude i don't mean that instead of just inked um yeah there's a there's a different aspect he looks a lot more beastly and again if you look in the game he looks a lot more like a kind of a beast creature than a guy which again just makes me feel as if the you know the artists are sort of subconsciously drawing beast from the x-men <laughs> maybe in the comic but it's a very nice it's uh, great a very nice drawing really is and, um yeah we don't really know where this came from though yeah i mean it doesn't like it's mike cliff robertson who's a british comics artist so it could well have been drawn for it but at the same time it something about it it has the look of a piece of promotional artwork yeah, it has that, that look that sega might have had made but it's very nice either way and because it doesn't say pin up and because it doesn't say you know from the pages mm, of sonic mm. the comic this comes across as an advert for the game yeah yeah it comes it looks like a, a little a little poster advert for yeah. the game rather than uh something where they're gonna go stick this on your wall kids yeah it doesn't explain why it's there at all, which is a good thing. That's what I want. I want them to... Ju- they're yeah. allowed to just print art without telling us why, <laughs> as far as I'm Yeah, concerned. so that it removes its function as a poster if you start putting stuff on it. Exactly. Or if you put a coupon on the back of it that you're supposed to cut out. <laughs> <laughs> Eternal Champion special then, Dave, as somebody who hadn't read it before and was a little trepidatious going into it. And who didn't remember the game even. Yeah, it, I mm. just I just liked it. I feel like this is kind of a good... I sort of wish I had read it at the time because it does serve as a good way in for someone like me who was never into people punching comics. It, I think this could have been a lead in to me reading, you know, the Marvel reprints and then the actual Marvel comics and that uh, were on the the shelves in smiths and so on alongside stc and then that could have led me into comic shops yeah it's a it's a funny one i'm sure you've thought this yourself sometimes do you ever wish you could remove your own knowledge of something so you could back oh, go back God, and experience yeah. it for the first time yeah i get Always. that with this because um going back and reading all of these again for this podcast um with eternal champions it's been weird because as we've said we've had these characters introduced to us in a post-origin setting by the strip in the main comic already yeah um it does seem like the story's been told a little bit out of order and i would i'd really like to be able to remove my foreknowledge of the characters and just read the strip and really know how it scans in that capacity you know does it truly present everything you would want to know about these characters in the confines of its pages well i think so i i think it does but it's like even even whenever the strip started in stc we'd already been told in the news zone who each of the individual characters were so we kind of knew who they were going into the strip even back in the day 
I do wonder. I, I, I'll never know because even back in the day, even even when I approached it with no knowledge, I'd still have the news zone to warm yeah. me up. Well, as someone who's almost in that position, because uh, I don't remember things now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so when I read about the, the characters, all that I came away with was the sense of like they had characters already sorted out. I didn't remember who they were. So when I approached the first episode of STC's version of Eternal Champions... It was absolutely all I needed to know. I felt like I was completely being introduced to the premise and the characters. And frankly, it, it surprised me that you started wanging on about an origin story as soon as we started <laughs> reading it. Because to me, I was going like, yeah, okay, maybe that exists, but this strip has everything I need. And now I turn to this magazine and I find that to me, this is presented in, a, in an order that I really appreciate because it gave me the story. And then it said, and if you like... You can read about the... We were talking about fact files earlier. You can read the information that this all comes from. Do you know, it uh, It puts me in mind of when I was a kid and uh, we had the Bart versus the Space Mutants game and we had the mm. Bart Simpson jumpers we were all wearing at school and we had the Bart Simpson toys that people had and the Sing the Blues album was the thing that everybody had. And yet The Simpsons wasn't actually on TV. Yeah, yeah this is true. And we only knew of it in Myth, Legend and Trading Card. And um, around that time, uh, there was a special issue of Fast Forward magazine, which happened to have a two-page spread about facts about the Simpsons family. And it was all these, you know, just, here's some stuff. Marge's original name is Marge Bouvier. Interesting aside, as I edit this, I've actually been and found the two-page spread of Simpsons information in the issue of Fast Forward that I'm talking about. And uh, it does give Marge's maiden name. But the interesting thing about that is that I have always thought that Bouvier is spelled B-O-O-B-I-E-R, or boobier. And I thought that this was a bucket bouquet style joke, like a sort of a rude joke, like isn't it funny that her name is boobier, but they all pronounce it bouvier. Um, but uh, no, I looked it up, it is spelt B-O-U-V-I-E-R, and fast forward, simply got it wrong. But sure enough, they did get it wrong. This, is, this was one of the things I was there to check. They spelled it B-O-O-B-I-A. So, don't know what to make of that. They just got it incredibly wrong, what her name was. That's weird, isn't it? When you're doing a fact file and that's one of the facts, and you've put a fact, and I think it even says fact. Fact, Marge's maiden name was Boobia. And it wasn't. <laughs> right, back to the podcast. I was reading that going like, brilliant, now I know the context behind the album that I listened to. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and with this, it, it was a similar feeling. It was like, great, I have this, yeah. this wad of information that's telling me about the comic strip I'm reading elsewhere. Honestly, it's the Stay Sonic of the Eternal Champions strip in a way, yeah, isn't it? It's fine. Like, I suppose you don't think about it, but when you were a kid, that yeah. you didn't... You didn't experience things in the right order, did no, you? Never. How often did you see the first episode of a cartoon never. or whatever that gave you the origin? You just fell into it and you just embraced it and you watched it and you just took it as it was. And then, and then years later, when they finally decided to show the Turtles miniseries the on Turtles television. Miniseries. Did they ever show that? I don't know about it in the UK, but they did in Ireland. Did they? They did show the original miniseries in Ireland eventually, like sometime later. Yeah, yeah. I had to buy books and read it in books. I had to collect trading cards and read about it in there. And only when it came out on DVD did I see the miniseries. So, but I was happy with that. I was actively excited by that because you're finding out. You go on a hunt if you're yeah. a fan. And, and this is the means 
by which to do it if you're an Eternal Champions fan. By which means, I suppose, I suppose I shouldn't give the news zone any grief for being the thing that happened to relate the information about the characters first, because that's probably you know that's probably it. I never really thought about it, but as kids, we were used to not necessarily experiencing things in the right order. Yeah. Now, the only downside to all of this is that when a Turtles book, and I have it on my shelf still, it's up there, comes out saying, you know, here's the original story of how the team got together and this is how it all started, that made total sense because we were all Turtles fans. This whole thing, the promotion of Eternal Champions in the comic, the Eternal Champions special, it all has the gumption of treating this like a done deal. Like, we're all fans of this. Yeah. And it's a and it's a sure thing that there's going to be fans and here's the place for them to start. And I, I, I don't think it really shook out that way. It was never the... No. Even though I, I found out that the game did do well, it never quite shook out that it was that big of a deal to anyone consume sega product and that leaves this magazine with this odd feeling of like um well the closest i can compare it to is uh, i have the the paperback book very good paperback book by the way very in-depth and interesting if you're interested in this of the making of the popeye movie (laughs) this book came out before the movie came out so it spends the whole thing talking about how like oh we hope this is going to be the next wizard of oz and like we put so much work into this so that it'll be the next big success and it's like no i'm like one of five people in the world who thinks it's a good film (laughs) (laughs) i enjoy it as a, a moment in time. Yeah. I mean, we often talk about how Sonic the Comic represents a particular moment in time, yeah. but this more so than anything else. Like like we should say, aside from Shinobi getting a poster mag and Streets of yeah. Rage getting a poster mag, nothing else from Sonic the Comic would ever get this deluxe no. treatment of a special dedicated thing unto itself. And both of those games, like most of the other Sega superstars that show up in STC, were already established. Their games had been yeah. a success already and it was done and dusted. I mean, you could even argue that they were almost on the way out yes. by the time they got around to doing poster mags. They they managed to get... I mean, that's not true at all. Streets of Rage 3 hadn't happened yet. But, well. um, I mean, I think they got those poster mags off the strength of what STC had done with them already mm. more, more than anything else, mm. you know? But here's something that's explicitly looking forward and saying this will be the next Sega thing. If, like us, you're looking for more Eternal Champions action, you can find it in the pages of Sonic the Comic way back in 19. 19- There are still several chapters of the serial left to go from where we are now. We'll be picking it back up again in issue 22. And if you're looking for that, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. And if you get it from there, please do remember to leave us a review or a rating if you can, because it does help to push us up through those weird algorithmically defined charts. It does. And because people asking you to do that just sort of flows over you because it's in every podcast, pause for a moment actually leave us a review please (laughs) actually do it because it really does help and we'd like to get some more people listening so do that a good one a good one and we do have some very nice reviews up already that are very complimentary and we thank everybody who has left one for us yes Uh, but if you want to listen online and bypass the whole review part you can also (laughs) download the podcast directly from stctp.wigglehe.com where you can like us on Facebook and Twitter as well yeah that's right the Twitter is at Sonic Podcast. That's right. No one had got that before us. 
Um, and you can find us individually as well. I'm at Demon Tomato Dave. And I am at Chris McFeely. And you'll find us both on YouTube under those names too, doing what we do. Our opening theme is synchronised by Sonic the Comic The Band. You can find them at sonicthecomic.bandcamp.com. Uh, this hasn't been Sonic the Comic the podcast, but the next episode of that will be with you very soon. Bye! Bye!